Welcome to Ignite Church. Merry Christmas, everybody. My name is Chase. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Ignite. Really glad that you could be here with us this morning. If you have a Bible, open up to Isaiah chapter 52, uh, beginning in verse 13. We're going to explore Isaiah 52 and then Isaiah 53 as well uh, this morning. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time in December, uh, we are in a series called Messiah. And we're spending four weeks in the uh, book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophetic book of Isaiah. And Isaiah literally means God saves, means God saves. And so Isaiah wrote six to 700 years before Jesus Christ, the Messiah, uh, came into human history. But he wrote of the salvation that was coming with the Messiah. So he looked beyond a time of his own. He prophesied in that sense. And he spoke of a future salvation coming in the future king. And we realize that person is Jesus Christ. And as we look at the work of the Messiah uh, from the book of Isaiah, last week we saw that the Messiah arrived. Man, why are we celebrating Christmas? Because the greatest news in the history of the world is that Jesus arrived into human history. God took on flesh and entered into our human mess. That's why we celebrate Christmas, the advent of Christmas. But this week we see that the Messiah didn't just arrive and exist. Uh, The Messiah arrived for a purpose. And this purpose was to suffer. The Messiah arrives and he suffers. And in vivid detail, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 describe the suffering work of the Messiah on our behalf. And before we get into the passage today, I want to frame this passage with a major biblical theme. Uh, One of these themes that goes from Genesis to Revelation, it's all throughout the Old and New Testament. And this theme is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. In fact, it's such a major theme in the Bible that Uh, Allusions to the wrath of God are mentioned some 580 times in the Old Testament alone. The wrath of God. And when we speak of the wrath of God, we're referring to God's absolute opposition toward and hatred of sin and evil. It's the wrath of God. Now understand that the wrath of God is not some arbitrary, flippant emotion that he experiences. The wrath of God is rooted in the character of God. God is opposed to sin because God is completely pure. God is opposed to suffering because his plan and his design is for human flourishing. God hates evil because he is completely holy. He's set apart. He is good. He is just. And sin corrupts that design. Evil breaks our relationships. The oppression we see in the world, the suffering we experience in our homes, the the hardship, the trial, our sinful hearts, it's all a result of of human sin. How many of you say, yeah, I hate sin. I hate the opposition and the evil in the world, the oppression. God does too. That's God's wrath. And one... uh, analogy or illustration, a word picture that the Bible often uses uh, to demonstrate the wrath of God is this picture of a cup. And in Psalm 75, verse 8, 
uh, the psalmist speaks of this, this cup of God's wrath. And this helps us understand a little bit about how the wrath of God works and how this ties into the suffering of the Messiah. Psalm 75, 8, speaking of the wrath of God, says, In the hand of the Lord, there's a what? There's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. If you're a wine connoisseur, you know that wine should not be foaming. Right? The only reason wine should be foaming is if you're, what? You're shaking it up. If you're stirring it, if you're mixing it. And so it's this word picture of the wine of the wrath of God. It's this idea of every time we sin, every, th- every, every time we do something we're not supposed to, you could say, we break God's law, any time we think a thought or act in a way that's opposed to God's standard and good design for humanity, the things we leave undone that we should do, these sins that so corrupt our hearts. It's as if every time we do that, the, the cup of wrath in God's hand gets a little fuller. Every time you sin, it's as if wine is being added to the cup and it's being mixed in the hand of God. And this cup isn't going to stay in God's hand forever because it says that one day, we call this the day of the Lord, God will pour out the wrath that he's been storing against sin and evil. And who's going to drink it? All the wicked of the earth. That's you and that's me. All the wicked of the earth will drain it down to the dregs. So when we look at Isaiah 52 and 53, the question that was burdening Isaiah's audience 2,700 years ago is the same question that burdens you and me today. And it is this, who will drink the cup of God's wrath? Or who will save us from this wrath that is to come? God is a good judge and he will call all sin into account. He will make right all that is wrong in the world. But how's he gonna do that? He's gonna pour out the wrath back onto the people that perpetrate it. Back onto the wicked of the earth, the sinners. So who's going to drink the cup? Who's going to save God's people? That's the question in front of us, and really that's the question of Christmas. Where is salvation coming from? Spoiler alert, Isaiah 53 so vividly and clearly looks ahead to the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what we call one of the great messianic prophecies, which means Isaiah speaking to a time beyond his own in history. He's speaking of the Messiah, literally the anointed deliverer. And no one but Jesus fulfills the vivid details and the horrors that are described in the suffering work of the Messiah in Isaiah 52 and 53. Here's the big idea. The Messiah suffers for our salvation. The Messiah suffers for our salvation. He takes on the sin of his people for the salvation of his people. 
but he does it through suffering. And so I want to point your attention to Jesus this morning. As we look at Isaiah, I want to point your attention to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one, Jesus is the anointed Messiah who suffers for the salvation of his people. And we begin in Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13. Well, you need to know we're going to be covering 15 verses today. Um, It's one big poem, so all my orderly, structured people are really going to like this. It's one long, consistent poem. It's broken up into five sections with three verses each. And each of these five sections that we're exploring this morning are dealing with a different aspect, a different angle through which we can view the suffering of the Messiah and what that means for, for you and for me today. So beginning in chapter 52, verse 13, describes the service of the Messiah. God says, Behold, see, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. The service of the Messiah. Who's going to save the people of God from their sin? Not a powerful political ruler, not a king in one sense. But what's the first word that the Lord uses to describe his Messiah? Servant. Behold, my servant will act wisely. My servant will succeed. And you have to understand that when Isaiah was writing this, God's people were awaiting a Messiah. They were awaiting a promised deliverer. But they were not expecting it to be a servant. Because a servant is one, especially in Isaiah's day, who is completely dependent on another person. And so God says, I'm going to send my Messiah and he's going to be a servant. Israel was looking for a powerful political ruler. They were looking for a king to free them from all of their physical foreign enemies. Right? They were looking for a king to come in the line of David and build a temple and establish freedom for God's people and take land in Palestine. That's what the people were awaiting. But God says, My servant will succeed. My servant will be the salvation of my people. God's people were looking for someone mighty, and God says, I'm going to send someone who appears weak. God's people are looking for a king, and God says, I'm going to send a servant. Was Jesus a servant? Absolutely. In John 13, that's the, one of four biographies of Jesus' life in the New Testament. In John chapter 13, the, the writer describes this scene where Jesus, just hours before his death and crucifixion, served his disciples by doing the culturally unthinkable. He washed his disciples' feet one by one. This was a task that was only reserved for non-Jewish Gentile slaves at best. No way would a Jewish rabbi, a teacher, the Messiah of God, no way would he stoop so low as to 
wash his disciples' feet, but he does. Why? Because he came to serve. He said, just as I have served you, so too are you to serve and love one another. Well, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter two, he says, Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Jesus came to serve, but here's the irony of this all. In Isaiah 53, one through three, we see that the servant was rejected. Verse one, Isaiah asks, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That salvation imagery. It's like God being uh, above the earth, reaching his mighty arm down and snatching people up from the world. It's salvation, the mighty arm of the Lord. So he asks, to whom has the salvation of God been revealed? Verse two, for this Messiah grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is one of the very few descriptions of the Messiah Jesus in the Bible. And what it's saying is there's nothing physically charismatic or attractive about him that would cause you to want to follow him and submit your life to him. He doesn't look like the kings of our day. He's an ordinary man. He's a servant. But we reject this servant, verse three. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Jesus comes and says, I haven't come to put more burden on you or to put more oppression on you. I've come to serve you. And what do we do? We say, I don't want to be served and we reject him. Jesus was rejected in his day. The religious leaders rejected him. These were like the, the pastors and the, the Bible teachers of his day. Rejected Jesus. His hometown, Nazareth, they rejected him. He came in to do miracles there, and they said, there, there's no way this is the savior of the world, the Messiah, this is Joseph the carpenter's son. And he left ashamed. There's one story in John chapter one where one of his followers says, look, I found the Messiah promised of old. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Rejected him. No way. Could anything good come from Nazareth? At the cross, many of his closest followers, his disciples, rejected him. They abandoned him for a time. Judas, Iscariot, what did he do? He shared life with him. He ate meals with him. He was close to Jesus. Yet he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver and led him to the cross. Jesus was rejected in his day. And how many of you know that Jesus is still rejected in our day? What was true then is true today. We reject Jesus. Our culture, our world rejects Jesus. Right, Jesus comes as the light shining in the darkness, but how many of you know that we love the darkness? Jesus comes and says, I've come to give liberty and freedom to the oppressed and the, those who are enslaved to sin. But we say, I like being enslaved to my sin. 
Jesus comes and says, I am here to serve you and give you a gift that you cannot earn. And we say, no, I've got enough good in myself. I'm gonna make my way, claw my way up to God. We reject Jesus. Was Jesus rejected? Absolutely. John chapter one says it profoundly. It says, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him nor did they recognize him. said that the world was created through Jesus, yet the world rejected him. This servant was rejected. He wasn't only rejected, but he willingly experienced deep anguish. And that's what we read in verses four through six. It says, surely he, this Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is one of the heaviest truths, I think, in all of Scripture. And it's that the Messiah suffered physically and spiritually, willingly, under the weight of our sin. Jesus experienced deep anguish physically. The oppression, the toll, the weight of sin physically marred his body. Evil took its toll on Jesus physically. But even more so, Jesus suffered unfathomable anguish spiritually. What did Jesus say in his last few moments on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sinless, spotless, perfect Son of God taking on the sin of the world on the cross and feeling utterly forsaken by his father. You could say the cup of wrath was spilled out on Jesus' body in that moment. And he took on our sin and experienced estrangement from the father in that moment. Truly, on Calvary's hill, that that day when Jesus was crucified, the world saw a picture of hell. Separation from the Father. Sin taking its toll on the body and person of Jesus. Did Jesus experience anguish? Absolutely. Many times leading up to the cross in the Gospels, we have record of Jesus saying to his disciples, we're gonna set our face to Jerusalem because I must suffer. He knew he came to suffer, to bear the weight of sin. He suffered unfathomable anguish. He suffered the worst type of death possible and that's crucifixion. I wanna give you just briefly 
what crucifixion was like in Jesus' day so we can maybe grasp some of the extent of Jesus' suffering for his people, for you and for me. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. Oftentimes for crucified victims, they would begin with flogging in this uh, this whip, so to speak, had uh, leather throngs. Often rocks were in the leather, and on the end was uh, sharp metal, glass, or rocks. And they would flog the victim, and that flesh would tear from their backs. And then they would go, and they'd either be roped, or in Jesus' case, uh, nailed to the cross, not in the palms of their hands, but in the wrists, so the bone could support them longer, and then a nail in the foot. Uh, then they would have to endure the victims would endure the pain of the cross, the public scorn and humiliation of the cross. There are some records of people existing for days on the cross. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. Jesus suffered unbelievable anguish and torment on the cross. It was vile, and it was wicked. And it wasn't Jesus' sin that held him there. It was the sins of the world that he was willingly taking on. He suffered anguish, deep anguish, for the sins of the world. I think this can be hard for us to grasp, because sure, we, we do have a cultural problem with thinking too highly of ourselves, but I also think culturally we have an issue with thinking too low of sin and the devastating effects that sin has on people and on our relationships and on this world. At the cross, the devastating effects of sin were taking its effect on Jesus. He experienced anguish and suffering under the sins of the world. He not only experienced anguish, but what is more, he experienced anguish innocently. He was innocent in all of this. Romans would often uh, crucify their enemies. They would crucify their oppressors when they captured them. But Jesus was innocent. Look with me at verses seven through nine. Says the Messiah, Jesus, he, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit. In his mouth. The Messiah wasn't a criminal, he was a servant, and he suffered. Isaiah uses this word picture of a lamb. How many of you know lammer? They're, they're, they're very tender and very gentle animals. Right? Maybe when you were a little kid, you remember your parents saying, Hey, if you can't sleep, what are you supposed to count? You're supposed to count sheep. Supposed to get you to sleep, right? One of the leading mattress companies. What, what's their mascot? It's a sheep, because it's all cozy, right? They're, they're tender animals. 
In fact, I was, I was, I was reading about sheep. Um, you wonder what I do in a day. Um, reading about sheep. And sheep, they, they, needed, they needed shepherds because any time a sheep would roll, roll over on its back, they didn't have enough strength and they were too bulky and awkward to roll back over. And so the shepherd had to go and lift the sheep back on its feet. Uh, they're vulnerable animals. They're innocent animals. Right, and that, that's, the, that's the word picture that Isaiah uses to describe this Messiah. It says, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was silent. He was innocent. He's a lamb. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, sheep played a big role in that. Right, God called his people to bring an unblemished, Spotless young lamb to be sacrificed in their place. That was part of the sacrificial system and atoning for the sins of, of God's people. It was, it was a lamb. Was Jesus innocent? Absolutely. In fact, in John 1, uh, John the Baptist, the forerunner for Jesus, saw Jesus coming down the, the road and the first thing John the Baptist says is, Behold, see, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was this Lamb, innocent, spotless, blameless, who was led to the slaughter for the sins of God's people. He suffered innocently. And then in verses 10 through 12, we look at the work of the Messiah. we're asking ourselves what was actually accomplished in all of this. And Isaiah tells us, says, yeah, the Messiah suffers for our salvation and here's what he accomplished. Four things according to this passage that the Messiah accomplished in his work. First, he accomplished the purpose and plan of God. I need you to catch this. Verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. What's being said here is that ultimately it wasn't sinful men that caused Jesus to be crucified wrongly. Ultimately, it was the plan of God to make salvation for his people, undergirding all of this. It pleased God in the fullness of time to send Jesus into the world. This is why oftentimes throughout the Bible, the writers refer to our salvation as something that happened before the foundation of the world, right? Or Jesus is called the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. Before the earth was created, God had in mind purchasing salvation for his people in the suffering of Christ. It was the will of the Lord to do this. It pleased God to crush his innocent son for you. It was the will of God. Some translations say it pleased the Lord to crush the servant. The work of the Messiah also accomplished justification. That's, that means, think like a legal court setting, being declared righteous. You're guilty of something, but the judge says, not guilty. That's justification. Being 
made right with God. That's what it says in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's justification. It says, you, you are sinful, but because of the work of my Messiah, Jesus, I'm declaring you righteous if you place your trust and faith in him. The work of the Messiah makes many to be accounted righteous. The third aspect that was accomplished in the work of the Messiah and the work of Jesus, the suffering, is satisfaction. Satisfaction says he'll make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. The wrath of God that will pour out on all people at the end of the age was satisfied at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to bear iniquity. He bears our sin. He dies in our place. He takes the cup of the wrath of God with your name on it and it's splashed onto Jesus' body so there's no more wrath left for you if you're in Christ. I'll be counseling people, talking with people and they'll be followers of Jesus and they'll say, I think God is punishing me for what I'm doing wrong. And I say, no, no, no. If you are in Christ, there is no more wrath left for you. It was spilled and satisfied and drained down to the dregs at the cross of Jesus Christ. I was speaking at a junior high camp earlier this summer for what felt like three months. It was really only five days. Um, nine sermons in five days. It's like the pastor marathon, man. It was amazing. Remember after preaching about the work of Christ and talking about the cross and the good news for us restores us to relationship with the Father and satisfies the wrath of God? I had a student come up to me and say, for the first time I realized today that that should have been me hanging on the cross in Jesus' place, but he died in my place. I wish everyone would get that. That's the beauty of the cross. It wasn't Jesus' sin that left him hanging on the cross. It was the sins of his people, and he knew payment had to be made. He satisfied the wrath of God, and lastly, verse 12 says that he restores us back to relationship with the Father. It says, therefore, because he did all these things, God says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and here's our phrase, and makes intercession for the transgressors, for the sinners. This is priestly language. The Old Testament priest would go in on behalf of the people as someone who was set apart and holy to go into God's presence and and bear the prayers and the weight and the sins of the people and bring them before God. That's what Jesus does for those who are in him now. He acts as a mediator, a reconciler between God and man. He makes intercession for us as our great high priest. He restores us to relationship. This is the work of the Messiah. The Messiah suffers for our salvation. The Messiah suffers for our salvation. That's at the heart of the Christmas message. 
That the Messiah arrived to be the light of the world, yes, but he arrived to accomplish a purpose, and that was to secure salvation for sinners. So I close with this. In the hand of the Lord, there's a cup. With foaming wine, it's well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. I want to ask you, who will drink that cup? Either you, those who are outside of Christ, will drink that cup, and it will be a horrific day. Or you can say, Jesus drank that cup. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for me. And you can place your faith and trust in Jesus. And when you do that, when you turn to him in repentance and in faith, the Father looks at you and counts you righteous. And he says, there's no more wrath for you because it was drained at the cross That's good news. The Messiah suffers for our salvation. The Messiah drinks the cup of wrath for the wicked. Would you place your trust and faith in Jesus today? Christians, would you renew your strength, trust, and faith in Jesus today? Only Jesus drank the cup for his people. I know this is a hard truth, but it's a biblical truth. This is the drama of the universe. And in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup. Either you will drink it or you'll place in the one who drank it for you. Would you trust in Jesus this morning? Would you lean on Jesus throughout the Christmas season? This gospel message never gets old. This is the good news of our suffering servant who came to save his people from sin and the wrath of God. Would you pray with me?